We're in the second week of a series of studies focused on John chapter 15. If you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to take your Bible and to find that particular chapter in the New Testament. I don't know if this thought's ever crossed your mind, but looking back when, when you first became a Christian and you were told that when you put your trust in Jesus, the gospel, the good news was that your sins would be forgiven. But you also expected that there would be a new relationship with God, there would be a new power. You would hear preachers as you continued to walk with God, you would hear these preachers talk about joy and peace and a presence in your life that was substantial and that really made a difference. But in your experience, you felt that something was missing. And at times, you actually would raise the question, maybe not out loud to anyone, even someone very close to you, but you actually raise a question in your mind, is this all there is? I get saved, I join a church, I show up on Sunday, basically a straighten up and fly right approach to Christianity. And we do want you to fly right, but I want to suggest to you that there's a different kind of flying. And we want to explore that in this series. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 14 had just explained and made very clear to his disciples that everything that they were expecting would happen was not going to happen. He was not going to be the, the Messiah at that moment who was going to come, overturn the Roman government, and reestablish Israel as the seat of the kingdom of God. And he made it very clear in chapter 14 where, that he was going, that they... They were not going to be able to immediately follow him. That the world was not going to see him anymore. And so what they thought on this particular night of Passover was going to be the beginning of something amazing. In their minds, all they were hearing was this was going to be a big disappointment. In fact, in John 16... After, after chapter 15, John 16, Jesus actually looks at him and says, I can tell you guys are sad. He actually points that out. And so he is leaving. He has made it crystal clear to them. And he's begun to teach them about what was going to happen after he was gone. How do you follow Jesus when you can't see him physically or hear him physically? How do you follow Jesus? How do you make disciples when there's no master visually to follow? How does that happen? And so after Jesus makes it clear he's sending this Holy Spirit who's going to dwell in them, after he makes clear that that's coming, he then turns to this incredible illustration of how a disciple lives that we find in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches, he says. As the vine, the branch is connected to me, and as long as it's connected to me, it draws life from me. And as it, as it is united with me and it draws life from me, then it bears fruit. But everything that happens with that fruit is only possible because that branch, you and me, is abiding or connected to or continuing its connection to the vine. So Jesus said that this life is going to be very different, but he uses this word picture to describe the abiding life, what it means to abide in Christ. As we go through this series, we're going to take that and try to make it as crystal clear as we can. I don't think this is nearly as complicated as we have made it. This is not for extraordinary Christians. What Jesus is teaching in John 15 is for ordinary Christians. And so, as we come to this particular uh, passage today, I just want to look at the very first part of verse 4. 
I'm calling this message the inner life of a disciple. What's going on behind the smiles and the activity in the heart of a Christian? The inner life of a disciple. What's going on inside those Christians that seem to be growing, that seem to be thriving, that actually seem to have peace when everything's falling apart, that find it possible to unburden their hearts to the Lord in prayer, who, who seem to pray about things, they seem to have insight into what's going on into the world that, that maybe I don't possess, you don't possess. They seem to be particularly effective in their walk with God. What's going on in the inner life of a disciple who seems to be actually making it as a disciple? In, in verse 4 of chapter 15, he says these words, Abide in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. I'd like us to pray together. Uh, as we pray, we are, we're wanting to pray about this service and what the Lord's about to say to us. But I think uh, we also need to pray for thousands of brothers and sisters on the Gulf Coast who are being affected by a storm. And, um, and we need to pray for them. Uh, I have family in Port Lavaca and, and uh, Rockport and been in communication with them for the last few days. And they all evacuated. And, and as far as I know, their, their homes are relatively in good shape. But a lot of their other family and homes are not. And uh, those of you who visited South Louisiana after Katrina and Rita, uh, you know that what these people are in for is not something where they can just drive back home and clean up their yard and, and move back in. We're talking weeks and months and in some cases years before any sense of normalcy returns. So would you join me in praying for them this morning? Our Father, we join... Uh, with hundreds and hundreds of other churches across the country this morning. And we turn our attention to you as the one who hears our cry. And Father, we desire that you would work in a mighty way in the hearts of those who are hurting. For those brothers and sisters that are struggling this morning, we pray that they would be encouraged, and that your Holy Spirit would go to them and, and remind them of some of the truths that we're going to talk about here and how much you have blessed them and how much they have still in their possession. For those that don't know you, Father, we pray that you would open up doors to their hearts. We pray for the first responders that know Jesus. We pray for the relief workers that know Jesus and others that are going to be going. We pray that you would use them to shine brightly at a very dark moment in a lot of people's lives and that Jesus would be presented and that Jesus would be introduced and that Jesus would be received by those who are hurting who desperately need a Savior right now. Father, we pray that you would minimize the continuing damage of this storm. We pray you would move it out of there, cause it to go away. Um, we pray for the dozens and dozens of rescues um, in places like Houston that are going on even as I speak. Uh, we pray for your mercy. Father, as we meet together to worship today, uh, we need you to speak to us as well. We need to understand what you have called us to. When your word says you have called us to fellowship with your son, open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see the truth in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want to pose today is what is the inner life of a disciple? We're going to come back to this again and again, but, but what is the inner life of a disciple? Well, the, first, the first truth that I want to leave with you is this. The inner life was modeled by Jesus. In other words, the inner life of the disciple was first modeled by Jesus. He is not telling you and I to, to do something that he himself was not doing when he walked the earth and when he did ministry and when he taught. And so he is our, our model. I want you to notice the word in in John 15 verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. And so he's describing a relationship with him that a disciple has that is internal. It is on the inside. It's not something on the outside. It's something that happens here. Now we come to church and we have fellowship with one another, but this is a different kind of fellowship. This is a fellowship with Jesus Christ, but it happens on the inside. And this is the same kind of fellowship that Jesus 
had with his own father. In John chapter 14, if you want to turn back to the, the next chapter, John 14, verse 10, listen to what Jesus says as he describes the inner life that he had. John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? There's our word again, in. And the Father in me. Now, he just tells us in the next chapter, abide in me and I in you. What's he doing here with the Father? The very same thing. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, think about that for a moment. As a human being, born as any of us are born, Jesus did something that's very hard for us to understand, but this passage and other passages like it in John 6 and other places, he makes really clear that when he came to this world, he came as an ordinary human being. He, he is the Son of God. He never stopped being the Son of God. He is God. He, he never stopped being God when he became a human being. Uh, one of those names we sing about at Christmas time is the name Emmanuel. And the name Emmanuel means what? God with us. I knew I could ask the choir. God with us. By the way, it's great to have you all back there again. Um, God with us. God with us. And so Jesus never stopped being God with us, even though he was a human being. But here's what he did differently. When he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he knew what someone else was thinking, by his own testimony, everything he did like that that we look at and say, that's extraordinary. The only way he could do those things is because he was the son of God. He was divine. And so in that sense, he cheated. I can't do things like that. Everything he did like that, he says he did because he was an ordinary human being who at that moment was depending on the Father, and the Father was working in him and through him to do those things. In other words, Jesus wasn't living any differently at that moment than you and I do, except he was depending on the Father. He trusted the Father. Now listen, with that in mind, listen to the rest of what he says. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. And so Jesus had this continuous fellowship with his Father. There were times where in order to get alone with God, he would go out in the mornings. It says it was his custom, it was his habit to do that. He would go out in the mornings and he would do that to be alone with his Father. He treasured time alone with his Father. But did he stop communing or abiding or, or connecting with his Father when he left those times in the wilderness? No. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn to it. You can just jot it down, but I want you to hear something. You know, in addition to um, abiding, Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Remember that passage? Listen to what he says just before that. This is Matthew 11. Just listen, okay? Uh, Jesus is uh, dealing with some critics. He's dealing with some religious authorities. And in the middle of this discussion, listen to what happens. At that time, Jesus answered and said, you terrible people, you know, you are opposing me. Listen to what he says. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Next verse. All things have been delivered to me, son, wills reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now, did you catch that? In verse 25, Matthew 11, verse 25, 26, he's talking to God. And in the middle of talking to God, he starts talking to everybody else. You realize what that looked like? God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you haven't revealed this to the people who are wise and people who think they know everything, but you have revealed yourself to those who are babes, those who just simply trust you, people who just don't know any better except to trust God. So when Baptist Church... Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see that? He's just talking to God. Just out of the blue, starts talking to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Now let's continue our conversation. 
You know what that reveals to me about Jesus? That even though he's talking to people, even though he's dealing with his, his religious critics, even though he's dealing with all those folks, while all of that is going on, what is he doing? He's carrying on an inner conversation with his father. He has an ear to the father. His heart is open to the father. He is constantly in contact with the father. Now, he did that better than you and I ever will. But he models the inner life for you and me. He models the inner life of a disciple for you and for me. So that's the first truth I want you to see. This inner life was modeled by Jesus. There's a second truth I want you to see. The inner life is the birthright of every disciple of Jesus. It's your birthright. God intends that you have this inner life, that you enjoy it, that it become part of who you are as a Christian, as a believer, as a disciple. This relationship that Jesus has with the Father, in the very same chapter, he's saying that this is the same kind of relationship that you can have with him and the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 17, he's just said that the Father, he's going to pray, and the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, you're not going to see him anymore, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm physically going to be gone, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be for you all that I would be if I were there in person. And then he says, John 14, verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, what? In you. And so this very same relationship that Jesus has with the Father through the Holy Spirit, he says that when the Holy Spirit comes, you and I get to be a part of that same relationship. If that, if that, if that wasn't clear enough, he goes on, he says, you know, the world's not going to see him anymore, but you're going to see me. And they said, how can we see you if you're gone? You're saying the world can't see you, but you're going to appear to us? How is that possible? And, and then in John 14, verse 20, he says, you will see me. And then he says, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Boy, if I had time, I'd draw a picture of that because it's a great picture. You might want to do that in your free time. If you get bored during the sermon, just draw a picture of that verse. All right? I'm watching you. That sounds just like what Jesus described earlier. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. He says, now, you're part of that. You're in me, and I'm in you, and I'm in the Father. And so what Jesus is describing is that now something about you is going to change so dramatically that this way that Jesus has been living, now that he's gone, he's moved off the scene, the Holy Spirit moves in, and you now have an inner life available to you that Jesus had. Do you believe that? This relationship would replace and be superior to the one that they had with Jesus when he was here physically. If I were to ask a question, if you had a choice this morning, would you rather have Jesus here in person or the Holy Spirit here in person? Now, I'm not, this is a trick question, so I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to do that to you. Okay? But if I asked you, I think most of us, without thinking, we would say, I'd rather have Jesus here in person. But Jesus, if you go and um, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read it real quick. John 16, uh, after John 15, he does a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit. He's taking this vine and branches thing, and he's helping them understand it. And, um, and he says in John 16, verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. You're not happy that I'm leaving. Now, how many times have you thought... I wish Jesus were here. I wish he would just tell me what I need to know. It would be so much better for me if he would just speak to me directly. You see? And, and Jesus is, is, is talking to the disciples who are feeling that exa exact same thing. Your hearts are filled with sorrow right now because I said these things to you. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to 
your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. I have argued with that in my own heart. So if you have had trouble with that, you are not alone. Because it's many times seemed like it would be so much easier, Lord, if you were just here and you just sort of took the reins and took over. And so Jesus said this relationship with the Holy Spirit would be superior to the one that they had when he was here in person. So John 15 is answering, how does a disciple live in this new environment? What does that look like? How does it work? I can't see him. I can't hear him with my ears. How does it work? And so Jesus uses this amazing teaching. And as we go in future weeks uh, through this passage, I think you're going to see how most of the teaching in the New Testament is about how a Christian lives goes right back to John chapter 15. And we'll see that as we go. So Jesus says, you and I are like a branch that lives in a vine. You and I have a vital union with Christ right now. Every person here that knows Jesus, you may not be conscious of it. You may not be aware of it. You may have never thought of it before. But if you trusted Jesus and he saved your soul, you have a union with Christ just like a branch does with a vine. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20, which by the way, on Thursday morning, men, we're having breakfast together and fellowship, and we're looking at 15 verses in the Bible that we believe every man should know. This is our first verse that we're working through. Now, I told the guys, uh, this, this is uh, purely an honor system. I'm not going to make any guy stand up for, who goes to breakfast with me on Thursday and quote these verses. But we're, we're learning the value of taking God's word and hiding it in our heart in a fresh new way, I think. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. That's huge. He's the vine. Where is he? He's in me. What am I? I'm the branch. Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's how Paul describes it. Jesus says it's like a branch in a vine. Paul just says it very plainly. He says, Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So how is that possible? It's possible because something changed about you the moment you trusted Jesus. And dear one, if this didn't happen to you, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. There is no other kind of Christian on the planet except the kind of Christian who when they trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior for forgiveness of their sin, that at that moment, they changed on the inside. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I've taught this before, but when he says that you are a new creation, Christian, when he says that about you, he says that you are a new species of being. It's like Genesis 1 all over again. And suddenly, on planet Earth, a new kind of species appeared. And it's called a Christian. Now, now what makes you so different? Why are you a new creation? Because of the change that's taken place inside of you. And so I want to call your attention to, um, to the way Paul taught about this that I think really helps us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, um, and this is, should be on the screen, but it says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Do you see that? He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So the, the first thing that happened when Jesus invaded your life, and this is about your inner life, okay? The very first thing that happened is that the spirit of Jesus Christ came into you, your life and your human spirit merged with the Spirit of God. You are one spirit with him. Now, there's still a human spirit. There's still the Holy Spirit. But, it, but he describes it as one spirit. 
there's one animating force in your life. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in you, and you become one spirit with him. Now, the next thing that he says, a couple of verses later, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? In you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So, so what has happened is, is that the blood of Jesus Christ was, in a very real sense, payment to set you free from the penalty of sin, to set you free from Satan's kingdom, and his shed blood set you apart in a whole new way, came in and cleansed you in your, your inner world in a way that you are going to be understanding throughout eternity, but he came in and cleansed that. He made your inner person a temple where he could come and dwell. But nobody can see that. It happens in the inner part of the disciple. No one can see that. That has always been a problem for most of the world. It was a problem in Jesus' day. It was a problem for the early Christians. Because as they looked at every other religion in that day and time, they had an idol, they had a statue, they had temples, and when you went into those temples, there were representations of their gods, and you could go and see those gods in those temples. When Titus conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, this Roman general, one of the things generals liked to do was take home uh, souvenirs to show their, their victory and their power. And so he, he, he broke into Jerusalem. He destroyed the city. He leveled it. He destroyed the temple. But before he did, he went into the temple. He went into the outer court. He went into the Holy of Holies. There was a thick veil hanging up there. He knew that God was supposed to dwell on the other side of that veil. These Jews, these weird people who were all over the Roman Empire uh, who worshiped God, they said that the temple was where God dwelled, and so he was going to bring back a souvenir. And he goes into the veil, and he goes into the holiest of holies, and guess what was in there? Nothing. Nothing. And boy, wasn't he disappointed. But if he had talked to any Christian that was around at that time, he would have understood that God doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. You are the temple of God. God has come to earth and he lives inside every Christian on the planet. If he does not live in you, you are not a Christian by any biblical definition. And so you are a temple of the living God. And so this inner life, excuse me, that Jesus models for you and me is also an inner life that is our birthright as Christians and it's available to every disciple. But now I want you to see this third truth. While it's available to us, it's not automatic. Here's the third truth. The inner life must be chosen and cultivated. It must be chosen and cultivated. You can be a Christian your entire life and the Spirit of God can live in you and you cannot, you can be a person who doesn't understand what Jesus taught in John 15. Sad but true. And so you have to choose and cultivate this relationship. Now there are a lot of theological discussions about how human beings are composed on the inside. Um, there is a secular understanding of what we are on the inside. There are theories of the mind. You talk to psychologists uh, who aren't Christians and they'll, they'll give you their opinion of what we are on the inside. And they've been doing that for 100, 150 years. Um, and even among Christians, because of the wording used in Scripture, there are some debates. Some people say we are a duality. There is a, a material and an immaterial part of us. And, and, um, and so that immaterial part is called the heart. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, that's, that's what's referred to, the heart. And the heart really is a big circle, and inside it you can drop in soul, you can drop in spirit, you can drop in all kinds of other things. But we basically have this heart, or we have a soul, and then we have our bodies. Paul says something in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, uh, where he refers to the fact, he prays that our entire spirit, soul, and body would be sanctified. 
And so he seems to take another position called a tripartite view of our inner man and that we have a body, soul, and a spirit, that there is a distinction between the soul and the spirit. The writer of Hebrew talks about that. He says the word of God sharper than any two-edged sword. Why? Because it has the ability to draw a distinction between spirit and soul. Now, we could have a very interesting conversation here, and I could draw a lot of graphs and diagrams on the board, but let me, let me, for the sake of what we need to see this morning, say to you it really doesn't matter a lot. What you need to understand is that inside of you, there's an inner man, and outside of you, there's an outer man. We all see your outer man. I'm going to use man because that's the literal translation of the word that's used in the New Testament, but that is not to exclude women. You understand that. Before it became politically incorrect to say mankind, and now we say humankind or humanity, uh, we used to talk about, you know, man. The man landed on the moon. Well, it was a man, but we're talking about humanity, right? You with me? You can write me hate mail later if that's important (laughs) to you. This inner life must be chosen and cultivated. I'm saying to you it's not complicated. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, let me show you how uncomplicated this is. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. And he had just given a big laundry list of some horrible things that happened in his life. And he says, even though these things have happened, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing. Amen? Some of y'all should say a loud amen. The outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And so he draws a distinction between the outer man and the inner man. And every one of us has those two things going on. You and I are not going to understand Jesus' teaching in John 15 unless I understand that what he's talking about happens inside of me in my inner man. He's not talking about my outer man. Now, to help us uh, think about this this morning, uh, I have a door over here and, um, and a couple of chairs, and I want you to use your imagination, okay? You're going to have to use your imagination over there, especially. Let me pull these chairs out just a little bit, okay? When you first become a Christian, this amazing thing takes place where the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and so suddenly where you had just one chair in your inner man... Now there's a second chair, and you can literally have fellowship with Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that, what that means, but if I was going to have a mental picture of it, it's a picture where I sit down, and Jesus sits with me, and in my inner man, we have this relationship going on. I'm able to have communion with him, I'm able to fellowship with him, I'm able to have conversation with him, and then I have my outer man. And I go out here, hello everybody, now you can see me, but you don't see what happens over here. Remember I said you've got to use your imagination. Okay, in the inner man, you don't see that part. Now you see what affects that part when I go out here, because the quality of my inner man typically affects what you see in my outer man. It really does. And so Jesus is talking about a relationship that you have with him in the inner man. All of us have an outer man and an inner man, but dear ones, most of us live out here. Most of us live out here in the outer man. And, um, and how do I know that? Um, let me give you some examples. Now, one way I know it is we get really uncomfortable when we talk, start talking about who we really are on the inside. Because when Jesus came in to the inner man, Boy, he, he cleaned house. And, and I don't know why we don't understand this, but because he dwells in you, he sees everything that you're looking at. He hears everything that you're saying. He is exposed to everything that you're exposing yourself to. And in effect, we leave the door open. And whatever's going on out here, Floods our inner man. Just floods it. Let me give you some some things that happen to us when our whole life is focused in the outer man and we don't do business with the inner man, even as a Christian. Uh, One of the things that happens as we pray is if God was out there, 
If I live in my outer man and I don't deal with my inner man very much, I'm going to pray like God's out here. Oh, God, where are you? And there's this little voice over here saying, back here. Oh, God, where are you? Why don't you hear me? Why aren't you listening? Why aren't you answering my prayer? And we talk to him like he's way out there somewhere. And all the while, he sits and he waits. And he's never been far away from you. He's never, for one moment, he says, he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you if you're a Christian. He's always here. Always here. What is it, what is it you think it requires for you to, to, to get here? Well, I think it's going to take some faith, doesn't it? I've got to believe that what he said is true. That the moment I turn to him in faith, he is there. And he's available to me. But when I pray, if I live out here, and I'm not very comfortable with my inner man, I don't have that picture going on in my head, and I'm not exercising faith like that. I'm just out here, and, um, and I feel like he's far away. Let me tell you something else that happens. Uh, because everything in the world is designed to keep us focused on the outer world. I believe that's one of Satan's greatest uh, schemes and techniques is to keep you and I always focused on the outer world, always looking at something, always listening to something, never doing business on the inside, always doing business on the outside. But because of that, our hearts are controlled. My feelings, my emotions tend to be controlled by my outer environment. Whatever's going on out here is controlling how I feel on the inside. And so the, the, everything in the world just comes in here and floods and controls my inner man. And so I get worried and I get fearful and I get anxious and I get, get angry and buttons get pushed and everything that could go wrong. Don't you know there's a lot of Christians today that are experiencing that today along the Gulf Coast? Oh God, you said I would have peace? Where's my peace? And, and so Paul says, we're to rejoice always. Always. How do you do that? We're thinking to ourselves. And there's a peace I can have that passes all understanding. Oh, Lord, I'd like to have some of that peace. But as long as our external conditions are controlling our feelings and our emotions, as long as the inner world, I'm a stranger to the inner world, and I'm a stranger to this abiding life, and I'm a stranger to this communion and inner conversation with Jesus, as long as I'm a stranger to all of that, I'm at the mercy of the world. Whatever the world or my circumstances, whatever happens, that's what's, what's going to control how I feel. And the only way that changes is if I get into that connection with the vine. And I begin to draw life from the vine, direction from the vine, and I'm not letting the world call the shots on my heart. Uh, another thing that happens to us is we come to him only for decisions but not for fellowship. And so I'm living my life out here in the world. I get up, first thing I do, turn something on. I'm listening, I'm listening. Constantly being bombarded by the news, by the opinions, by thoughts, by worldly perspective. And what's happening is all of that worldly perspective is filling my inner, inner man. It just is. And um, in our Bible study Thursday morning, in Romans 12, 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the world's mold. And, and when I leave the door open... When I don't have a, an inner life with, with Jesus, I leave the door open, all that worldly perspective comes in, floods my mind, I'm conformed to this world. He says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. I need another perspective. If all I'm getting is the world's information, I need another perspective. But what happens is, is when I live out here and I get ready to make a decision, a big one, do I take this job, do I marry that person, do I go to this place and I have a big decision, then suddenly I go in here where I'm not accustomed to going and I sit down with Jesus and I say, Jesus, I need to know now. And I haven't tuned my heart. I haven't developed a habit of listening or talking with him or or having fellowship with him, and I just happen to be in here with my head filled with worldly perspective, and I'm in a near panic, and I feel abandoned. But what's happened is I'm in this terrible position on my emotions and my heart because I haven't, I haven't had fellowship with him. And something happens, and it's like the wheels are coming off of my life. And so if I spend all my life living out here, I'm vulnerable in lots of ways. Most Christians are absorbed with their outer man. Uh, that's true of many of us. 
and they've never spent much time developing the inner man. Here's what I want you to know. This is where the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. This in your inner man is where the Holy Spirit is at work. This is where he wants to create a pristine and wonderful temple for the presence of God. Here is where he wants to work. And so because of all the bombardment that goes on, and you remember what Jesus said when pray? He said, do what? Go into your room, your closet, and do what? Shut the door. It's kind of like that old song, shut the door. Keep out the devil and the worldly perspectives. That's why I don't sing the choir. And he says, come away with me. He says, shut the door, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He says, I want you to get to a place where it's just you and me. I want fellowship with you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience him. He waits for you here. If you're a Christian, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It may have been one day or 100 years. He waits for you to come and be with him. Um, there are many examples of this in Scripture. Um, there's so many. Uh, if you look at Book of Acts as an example, I'm just going to rattle some of these off. I've talked about some of these before because they've always impressed me. Philip in Acts chapter 8, he goes out in the middle of nowhere, leaves a very populated area where he's being blessed in ministry. He goes out into an empty place, and it says the Spirit spoke to him. It says the Spirit said, go near this chariot and overtake it. And if you know that story in Acts 8, he, sh he shares the gospel with a very important man from Ethiopia. Now, now what does that reflect? That reflects a, a, the inner life of a disciple. He would never have heard the Holy Spirit if he was living his world. His world was out here, and this is where he was spending his time, was with his outer man. He had to have a relationship with Jesus by faith in his inner man in order for the Spirit to speak and for him to understand the Spirit was speaking, to comprehend that, and then to obey that. I tell you what, that's a fun way to live. Where any here on the roof in Acts chapter 10, he's, it's lunchtime, he goes up on the roof to pray. The Bible's very clear about it. He goes up there to pray a while before lunch. And he gets up there, and while he's there, he has a vision. And the end result of that vision was the Holy Spirit said, there's three men from a guy named Cornelius coming downstairs. I want you to go with them. Follow them where they lead you. I got somebody I want you to talk to. Now, what does that reflect about Peter? It reflects the inner life of a disciple. Here's a guy that was just praying. And because he was praying, he was cultivating a relationship with Jesus through his spirit where Jesus could speak to him, prompting, encouraging. Uh, Acts 13, you have a group of guys doing this who are worshiping together, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, separate to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. And that happened to a group of persons. Paul crossing Asia Minor, it's the most remarkable thing you read about in Acts 16, crossing what's today modern-day Turkey, and he tries to go left to to Ephesus and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. He tries to go north to Mysia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. Not knowing what else to do, he goes down to Troas right on the coast and overnight he has a dream, gets up after that dream and says, God's leading me to go to Europe. What does that reflect? The inner life of a disciple. Later in Acts 16, one of the first places he goes to, Philippi, he gets arrested, gets beaten with rods, he gets thrown in prison, and at midnight it says he and Silas are singing praises they're praying and they're singing praises to God at midnight after they've been beaten up with rods what does that reflect the inner life of a disciple comes overflowing out doesn't it you can't keep it in if you are doing what Paul's describing in Philippians 4 and you are rejoicing always if you are bringing everything to the Lord and laying it at his feet if you are if you are um, in that posture of that communion and that conversation with him it boils out, and that's what was happening in Acts 16. In another place, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 describes an encounter with God that was so profound and so life-changing for him that reflect the inner life of a disciple, someone who's simply spending time with God. 
And not just in the morning or not just at night or whenever you have your quiet time, but this really lights the fuse that goes on all through the day. And so the truth is this. You and I are called to live in both realms at once. We are called to live in the realm of the outer man and we are called to live in the realm of the inner man at the same time. That's what Jesus did. That's what was going on with him is he had one ear to the Father, he had an ear to the rest of the world at the same time as he did ministry. So many times someone comes to talk to me or I'm sitting doing something and, and there's an inner conversation going on. I am not perfect. I am learning. I am growing. Yesterday I got a, a note that somebody uh, had gone to an ER. And my first thing was not to just drop everything and go. My first thought was, Lord, what do I need to do? And immediately I sensed oughtness, go. And so I got up and went. I can't tell you how many times that happens. Well, I've got to make an immediate decision, and I have a sense of what I'm supposed to do. Somebody comes in to talk to me in my office. I'm sitting there listening to them. Some of you all have sat there. I keep a chair. I sit across from you. I keep Kleenex on my desk. It's not because I make you cry. Typically, people are hurting when they come in. But as I'm listening to you, as I'm listening to what you're saying to me, in, in my heart, there's another conversation going on. Lord, what do I need to know? Lord, what do I need to hear? Lord, how do you want me to respond to them? What is it that you want to say to them? What is it that's going on? Because I can't assume that I know what's going on in, in your inner man. But he knows. He knows. And so we are called, and we're going to stress this as we go along, to live in both realms at the same time. We are called to live in the outer man and the that is cultivated, something that we do by choice, something that is practiced. In John 15, verse 9, let me close with this. Jesus says something, and I want you to hear this, maybe if you heard nothing else today. What's the motivation for this? What's the motivation for For having time with him. Listen to what Jesus says. John 15, 9. As a father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. You have any idea how, the, how much a father loved a son? what the father would do for the son? Was there ever a time that the father didn't love the son? Was there ever a time where the father said, I'm not going to love you today? As the father has loved me, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. As the father has loved me, I have loved you. And then what does he say? Abide in my love. What is he saying? He's saying, dear one, your inner man, I'm here. Sometime you may come and sit with me. It's my son or daughter. And nothing may be said. You're just sitting with me. You're enjoying me and I'm enjoying you. Other times you come and, and I've said, in my word I've said, I want you, in everything, I want you to make petition, I want you to make supplication, I want you to make your request known to me, everything. Peter says, to cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. He throws in that for he cares for you part. You and I need to know that. And so there's this, this opportunity you and I have. Whether you do it in the morning or at lunch or at night, I don't, I don't know. But, but this, this here, it's not just something where I read a, a few scriptures and I'm done with my quiet time for the day. It's a relationship. And then when you get up and you go to work and you do whatever you're doing, he says, abide in me and I in you. It doesn't stop. 
Because this inner part of you, this inner man, still here. And, and you can't think of two things at once. Yeah, we get busy. Yeah, we forget. Yeah, we get distracted. But you know, the moment you realize what's happened, you can turn immediately and say, thank you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. And it continues. He wants us to relate everything back to him. He doesn't get tired of hearing from you. He doesn't grow weary of hearing from you. I doubt that there's anyone here, he says, that's enough. Because that's not who he is. That's not his heart. He says, I've given you my spirit to live in you. Why? Just so you have a down payment on heaven? I've given you my spirit. He's to be for you all that I would be if I were there in person. You're not short anything. It's to your advantage. I've given you the very best that I could give you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You think he gets tired of you? If he says things like that? He's not. He loves you. He's passionate about you. He wants to take you further and farther in this relationship than you ever imagined. I can hardly wait as we continue to dig in John 15. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This relationship begins with a simple act of faith. The Bible says the only thing standing between you and your relationship with God is your own sin, your own choice. The Father sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins so that everything standing in the way between you and a relationship with him could be washed away. I don't care what you've done, you can be forgiven. And with that forgiveness comes so much more than just forgiveness. There comes this fellowship with Jesus Christ in your inner man. Have you trusted him? Does he live in your heart by faith? Does the Holy Spirit live in you? Jesus said that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It begins when you trust Christ. Brother or sister, he says, abide in me, and I in you.